welcome to Home Builders, and good morning. And I want to tell you a little bit about myself because I haven't been around for a couple of years. I'm an old-timer at this church, you know, back when it used to be Neighborhood Church, and even before that, Cathedral at the Crossroads. Um, now we're three crosses, but I've uh, been a, a, uh, not here for a couple of years. I've been living in different cities. And so a lot of you I know, but a lot of you I don't know or I haven't met yet. So I just thought I'd tell you a little bit about myself. I'm a super curious person, so I always like to know people's background a little bit. So uh, I thought I'd tell you a little bit. So a little bit about me. I grew up here in Hayward and Castro Valley. Um, I am married to a wonderful guy named Robert. And he's actually not here today. He's practicing our topic, balancing work and rest, up in the mountains today. So uh, he's not here, but I'm going to make him listen to the podcast. Um, we have two adult children. Both live out of the area. We have a son and a daughter. Uh, before we had children and I was married, I worked at a newspaper down in Southern California. So that's kind of my background. Uh, thus, the curiosity, as you know, people who work at newspapers are very curious people. I also have been a stay-at-home mom and a high school English and journalism teacher. So I may or may not give you a pop quiz after. Um, I've attended this church since 1995 and served in all kinds of different ministries. And probably the favorite thing I've ever done, my most favorite thing, was working here on the Home Builders team. And I also worked at this church as an employee for four years with Mark and Tracy Tyler, and that was so much fun. Uh, more fun than work, I think, which is, you know, what you would like work to be. Um, and then kind of towards the end of that period of working here for Mark and Tracy, um, I began to really have this strong desire to write. And it was one of those childhood dreams that I always had, but you never... Sometimes when you have a dream like that, you're not sure if it will ever come true, and you don't know how to make it happen. But that's not really our job. That's God's job, right, if we follow him. So I had this amazing experience of getting my first book published when I worked here for Mark and Tracy. So I always call them the midwives of my book. Even Mark, I call him a midwife. <coughs> so my first book was published. I now am working on my 11th book. And my current book is I'm helping an astronaut tell his story. He's the only astronaut who has ever climbed Mount Everest. So he's the only person who's ever flown in space and climbed Everest. And I'm going to tell you a little bit more about him and about that experience uh, a little bit later today. So just something to look forward to. Um, and then as a writer, I'm a full-time writer now, so I work hard, as all of us do. Everyone in this room does. You have to work hard in the Bay Area, right, to be able to pay your bills, um, and also to carry out my calling. And so when Mark asked me to talk about balancing work and rest, because tomorrow is what? What holiday is tomorrow? Labor Day. Labor Day. So that can mean a lot of different things, but, you know, we think about work. Um, when I think of Labor Day, I think about work. And I was kind of, you know, I've been thinking, do I really balance work and rest in my own life. I mean, when you get up, when you're asked to teach something, it's nice to say you're kind of an expert on it, right? You want to be able to say, this is what I do, and this is what you should do too. But I don't know that I can say that. I mean, honestly, um, maybe some of you have been able to balance work and rest perfectly and kind of have a life very organized. I feel like sometimes I get close to that, 
and then something happens and everything just, you know, gets out of whack. So if that's your experience, then I'm hoping that maybe something that you hear today will help you kind of with those feelings of guilt and shame that can happen or insecurity when you feel like maybe everybody else has this together and you don't. Because I don't feel like I quite have it together either. I haven't arrived <coughs> in this area. So we'll talk about that together. That is something that we're all working on and looking for help in. But the first thing I thought we'd talk about is really the fun part of this, which is the rest part. And I was thinking about where I most like to rest. Where do I find the best rest? The thing that kind of recharges me, makes me feel good and refreshed. And I think it's the forest. And we have a picture um, that was taken, I don't know, probably a couple of years ago right at twilight, and uh, Robert and I were taking a walk with uh, our dog, Eli, the light just kind of shining through the trees, and there's something about being in a forest that is just very restful and recharging to me. And then Robert has a, a place that's a little bit different. <coughs> he may be doing this right now as we speak. This is a place up in the Sierras called the Potholes, very strange name, but basically it's big, huge slabs of granite. Water has run down through this canyon and created pools of water. And they're crystal clear, and they kind of run down and over rock. There's little waterfalls. There's even a natural water slide. And so you can go there, and people are in their bathing suits. It's actually just on the other side of where his foot is, right here. And they kind of go down this water slide into this cold, clear snowmelt water. It is absolutely his favorite place on earth. It's absolutely beautiful. Cool thing is, it's only a two and a half to three hour drive from here. So if you want to see it, come up and ask me after. I'll, I'll give you directions to where it is. And it's free, absolutely free. You can just drive up there, go to this place, hang out, little piece of heaven on earth. So I have a quick discussion for you at your table before we kind of get into this topic. We're going to be looking at how Jesus did work and rest. He's our example, right, rather than any kind of worldly system. So at your table, I'd like to think, you to think of your favorite relaxation spot. It's probably going to be different for every person in this room. What is your very favorite relaxation spot? Share a little bit about the slice of heaven on earth and why it relaxes you. And we'll come back to talking in a minute, a couple of minutes. Go ahead. All right, now that hopefully you have that warm, fuzzy feeling from talking about a place that rests and refreshes and relaxes you, I'd like to go ahead and move on and talk a little bit about this idea of balancing work and rest and seeing if it's even possible. Uh, this thing that seems like we never completely master, kind of that perfect balance of work and rest. And so um, I'm learning, I'm still learning, I'm 51 years old, still learning to look to the scriptures for the big questions of life instead of other places. And so, um, of course, the Bible has, uh, the, the goal of the Bible is to show us how much God loves us and to point us towards the Lord and to allow us to have the hope of forgiveness and eternal life. 
Um, and then to be able to go out and share the good news with others. That's kind of that primary core message of the gospel. But the Bible also has practical uh, suggestions and principles for how to live. And I, th I believe that includes how to balance work and rest. And the world's ideas and messages on this can be very confusing. Um, we get mixed messages about whether we're to pursue work or rest and how to do that. Uh, my husband is a, is a manager at his work, and he has talked about how younger people, kind of what we would call the millennial generation, seem to live a little bit more for recreation. You know, they kind of live for the weekend. Uh, the greatest generation, our grandparents, and in some cases our parents, seem to live almost for work, very hard workers kind of seems to swing back and forth, and it can be a little confusing. What is, you know, the way that we should live? Um, and my friend Tracy always says it's a, we live in an upside-down world. So how do we make sense of something like balancing work and rest? So some of the experts in the world suggest that we set goals. I think that's a good thing. They tell us to set daily, weekly, monthly, annual goals, even life goals. Um, there are coaches that we can consult to kind of help us with balancing work and rest. Some people have life co coaches. Some people have business coaches. Um, some people will do it kind of more casually with a friend or an accountability partner. And then there are seminars and workshops. Have you ever seen those or been to one of those? There'll be people who say, I have the secrets for living the perfect life and being productive and being happy and having all the recreational time that you want. There's a guy named Tim Ferriss. Have you heard of him? He's a kind of a self-proclaimed expert, a very kind of a charismatic speaker, and he has a book called The Four-Hour Workweek. Have you heard of that? <laughs> What a concept, huh? So that book's a huge bestseller. You can see why, just the title alone. Most of us would spend a 10 or $15 to figure out how to have a four-hour work week. I think a 40-hour work week would be a nice goal for a lot of us because we have to work longer. But his idea is that you start your own business, you figure out how to make it a success, you work for four hours, and then the rest of your week is vacation and learning and kickboxing and you know going on dates and just doing all these wonderful things. It's kind of funny though because I know how much goes into writing and marketing a book. I can guarantee you he worked a whole lot more than four hours a week getting this book out in the market. But how confusing is that when someone's telling us we can do it and you should do it, and I do it, and why can't you do it? I mean, what a burden to lay on us. There are productivity experts who have methods and approaches and spreadsheets. There's wearable electronics that track you and kind of tell you when you can be most productive. Um, there are blogs and apps and planners and podcasts and webinars. And all of them have a special method that they want us to follow. And it goes on and on. The latest one I saw, um, and I think it was in a class um, at church, and it was a great diagram. It was a wagon wheel, and in the center was Christ, because Christ needs to be at the center of all of our lives. That's what makes sense, and that's what you know makes for a happy life. And then each of the spokes was an area of your life. So finances, friends, you know, marriage, children, work. And then the idea is to keep all of those things balanced with Christ at the center. And it's a beautiful diagram, 
unfortunately, it doesn't always work that way. Because what happens? I mean, you get everything in balance, and what happens? You have a money problem. A child has an issue. You get ill, or someone in your family gets ill, and all of a sudden, you know, it's like when you get a flat tire, and you're moving forward, and everything is just out of sync, and you've lost that balance. And you wonder if you're ever going to get it back. So I would suggest that these methods set us up for failure because it's very hard to maintain these things over a long period of time because life happens. Michael Hyatt, who's a very well-known podcaster and speaker and, and writer on this subject, says that in the average life, you're either in a crisis, coming out of a crisis, or about to go into a crisis. And that's kind of true, right? Like, we're always waiting for life to just even out and just get kind of boring because it's just so wonderful and you're only working four hours a week. But that's not reality. So uh, life does get in the way. These things set you up for failure because life is not static. It changes constantly. So I kind of wanted to dig into this a little bit beyond the methods and the diagrams. And um, as you already know, as I told you, I'm a writer and I write books. I'm trained in newspaper journalism. And so I like things to be clear and I like simplicity. I don't like things that are complicated. I like to try to figure out what's at the core, what's the truth here. And so um, with all of these confusing messages, uh, I've created over my life a very simple litmus test, just a test for things that confuse me. And it can be anything from theology to, you know, taking a look at other religions and their beliefs. I use it for politics because we need some clarity on that, right? Uh, social issues can be very confusing for a Christ follower. Cultural questions. Anything that I don't understand that seems confusing in terms of learning how to live, I've created this very simple method that just kind of gives me a lot of clarity and peace. So there's two questions I ask myself, and this is on your little handout there, and they're just very simple. What did Jesus say, and what did Jesus do? You really can't get more simple than that. Whenever I have a question, that's where I go first. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus do? <clears throat> and this clears up so much for me. It's not that Jesus talked about every single question that I'm going to have or face today, but generally looking at his life, what he said and what he did, I can kind of, you know, begin to figure out how would Jesus approach this problem? How would he have me approach this problem? And it really clears up a whole lot of, of confusion for me. So I want to apply my little two-part method here to this idea of work and rest and balancing these two. What did Jesus say and what did he do in regards to work and rest? So we're going to turn to what he said first, and we're going to look at Matthew 11, 28 through 30. This is in the message version. I use that a lot because it gives me a fresh look at scripture. I grew up on King James. And so using a different translation kind of helps me uh, with a fresh view of Jesus' words. So let me read a little bit to you. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. And Jesus says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. 
get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Doesn't that sound better than following somebody's crazy method? So here's a principle for you. Often the world's systems and answers don't work for how God wants us to live. And I'm just like you. I'm looking for answers to the problems of everyday life. And I'm very tempted to buy a lot of books and buy into these systems, but they don't necessarily work. It doesn't mean they can't help you, but they're not going to be the end-all and be-all of this problem of balancing work and rest. Here's another scripture. This is from the Psalms. This is beautiful. You may have heard this one. Psalm 90, 12. Teach us how to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I love that verse because I think it has both ideas of work and rest here. Number our days. Teach us to number our days. There's, that's math. You're analyzing there. You're being intentional. You're not just, you know, kind of living, oh, I'll do this, I'll do that, you know, just kind of following the wind wherever it blows. But you are being intentional. You're setting goals. You're maybe creating some kind of plan for your life or your days. Teach us to number our days. But thinking of what Jesus said about learning how he lived in the unforced rhythms of grace that sounds a little more intuition-based in a way. It doesn't mean you're going to quit your job and, you know, just go live as a hippie on the streets or something. But it means that if you're going to err to one side or of the other with work or rest, with, you know, being very analytical and systems-driven driv- versus spirit-driven, it sounds like Jesus is nudging us a little more to the spirit-driven side. The unforced rhythms of grace sounds like intuition-based, not driven, open to opportunities, and to the Spirit's leading. And so this is the balance we're looking at that I think Jesus showed us in what he said and how he lived. I don't think Jesus was calling people, everyone, to leave their jobs and go be a street preacher, an itinerant street preacher, although he did do that with some, with the disciples. But he also was saying, don't live a life of rules and kind of cold-blooded, you know, analytical thinking, maybe more like the Pharisees and the Sadducees of his time, the religious establishment. He's saying there's a different way. I have a different way for you to live. Um, We're going to look back at the verses before that first passage in Matthew. So this is Matthew 11, 25 to 28. And this is where Jesus is talking about the efficiency and productivity experts of his time and of ours, I believe. So look at what comes in this passage before. Jesus says, O Father, (coughs) he's praying here, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever and for revealing them to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. My Father has entrusted everything to me. 
No one truly knows the Son except the Father, and no one truly knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus is saying there that the world's productivity experts, people who want to tell you how to live your life, don't necessarily understand this idea. They think they are very wise and clever, and I don't know Tim Ferriss personally. I think he is a, a clever person, but he may not necessarily understand this idea. And uh, Jesus says that his father reveals these things to the childlike, to people who trust the Lord, who trust Jesus, and who want to live a life that is pleasing to him and that he's going to help us how to live. So could it be that the world's efficiency and productivity experts might not have all the answers and that the secret secrets to balancing work and rest are hidden from them and that we can learn more from Jesus on this? And I do believe that. So the question is, how did Jesus live? We looked at what he said briefly. How did he live? What was his schedule like? What were his days like? How did he balance work and rest himself? First thing I see <coughs> is that his schedule was unpredictable. When you're looking through the Gospels and following Jesus' life and kind of day-to-day -day things that he did, he was very unpredictable. He did not follow the four-hour workweek idea or anybody's idea of productivity. And he seemed almost random at times. And people would get frustrated with him because they expected him to stick to a certain kind of schedule. And he didn't necessarily do that. A great example is the story of the woman at the well in John 4. And I'm not going to read the whole story because it's a very long story. But Jesus was leaving Judea. He was heading back to Galilee, walking by foot, as they did. And they stopped in the town of Sychar. I hope I'm saying that correctly, uh, for food. So it would be like, you know, if I'm driving to the mountains and I'm going to stop in Fairfield for lunch. So it's just a little quick stop. It's high noon on a hot day. Jesus is tired from traveling. He's walking, again, in the heat of the day. He and his disciples choose a rest stop, a beautiful well outside this town. And he waits while the disciples go into town to buy food. So he's just sitting by the well. And a woman comes with a jar in, the hand, in her hand, and he asks her for a drink of water. A very simple moment. He's thirsty. But there's some problems there. The Jews were not supposed to speak to the Samaritans. This was a Samaritan woman. Men were not supposed to speak to women without their husbands present. And rabbis had no business speaking to what seemed to be maybe a bit of a shady lady here. And so Jesus was willing to toss out these rules, uh, but the woman at the well immediately recognized, you know, this is kind of a strange situation. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman, she says. How can you ask me for a drink? And then they move on into this incredible conversation where he reveals who he is and focuses on grace while she's kind of focused on the law. The result is a long conversation, unprecedented, scandalized the disciples when they come back, came back. She is saved. She runs to her town. She tells the whole town what's going on. M many others are saved too. Jesus ends up staying there for two days. And it's just this amazing, unscheduled, in the disciples' mind, stop. Jesus knew what he was doing. The Father knew what he was doing. So he was very uh, 
on schedule sometimes in things that he did according to what people who were observing him or who around him thought. But what we learn from this is that sometimes distractions or interruptions are the main event, right? The disciples thought the stop was about getting lunch. Jesus knew this stop was about this woman and about this entire town. So sometimes distractions or interruptions are the main event. But how do you know when that's the case? How do you know when the distraction is the main event? The next thing I see is that Jesus asked God for direction. He asked God for direction. I want to show you this book I've been reading. Um, It just came out. It's by a friend of mine. It's called Moments and Days. I don't have it up on the PowerPoint. It's by a writer named Michelle Van Loon, like the bird, L-O-O-N, Moments and Days. And it's called How Our Holy Celebrations Shape Our Faith. And she talks there. She's Jewish, a, a Messianic Jew. She talks about the Jewish calendar of the celebrations and holidays and then the Christian calendar. But um, something that I read in there really struck me. And I realized I don't do it. And she said that she has learned to pray over her calendar. And to me, it's like my calendar is almost like this earthly, tangible, nuts and bolts, paper thing that I do to stay organized so people don't get mad at me, right, when I miss deadlines or forget something, a birthday. But she not only prays over her calendar, she prays before she ever works with her calendar. So when you're looking at your calendar, trying to figure out what you're going to do, when you're going to have time for this or that, you're working on business things, someone's asking you to do something, she's learned to pray over her calendar and to pray before she works with her calendar. Um, Not only to change your schedule, but to follow God's leading in your everyday events. So Jesus asked God for direction. I think that um, Jesus talked about that in John 5, 19. It was right after a healing, and Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. Remember those stories how Jesus would heal somebody, or the disciples would, you know, pick some food on the Sabbath, and they would get in trouble. And Jesus explains how he's deviating from the schedule and why. He says, I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he's doing. So Jesus, because he's fully God and fully man, understands as he's walking through life what the father wants him to do. So he is doing what God asks him to do, not following a schedule set by himself or by others. We are not Jesus, but we're called to live like Jesus. So I think it's a worthwhile and honest goal to try to live like that. What does the Father want us to do in our daily life and with our schedule? Um, Jesus also prayed for direction many times. A notable one is right before he picked the disciples. He was going to pick the 12 people who were going to live with him for three years and who he was going to train to carry on his work and to start the church, um, or to carry on the church's mission. Jesus started the church. In Luke 6, 12, one day Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night. The next day, at daybreak, 
he called together all of his disciples, so a group of people, and chose 12 of them to be apostles. So he, before he made this big decision, even though he's God, he went and talked to God the night before, and then he called those apostles the next day. He named them. So praying over your calendar, praying over your decisions. Not only did Jesus change his schedule or change his decisions, make his decisions based on the Father's will, but he even changed careers as God directed. He changed careers as God directed. Jesus was a carpenter in his early life, like his stepfather Joseph. And a carpenter doesn't necessarily mean a person who... Uh, you know, does what we would think of as a carpenter, you know, not necessarily building houses. It means he could have been a construction worker doing any kind of construction work. He could have been making cabinets or furniture. We do know he was some sort of craftsman. craftsman. So for the majority of his life, he was a working man. And he learned this from his stepfather probably in his teens. And probably by the age of 30, he was very good at his job. He'd been practicing it on the job for a long time. But then it was time to change careers for him. He was baptized. The Holy Spirit descended on him. A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. And Jesus began his ministry. Don't you imagine this must must have been a little confusing to his family and to his friends and to his community? They had Jesus pegged. I mean, they knew there was something special about him. There were stories probably circulating about strange events surrounding his birth and, you know, what happened when he was at the temple as a young boy. But he was just part of the community like everyone else, working, resting, having friends, And all of a sudden, he changes careers. He leaves a stable job. He leaves his paycheck, however that worked out for him. And he becomes a traveling rabbi with nothing to his name. He had no money and no house to live in, no permanent home. So it seems like he kind of went backwards career-wise. But we know, looking back and having the scriptures to read, that he was diverted into far more important business business that affects us today because he sacrificed his life for us for us I've been through a career change too I was a high school teacher I worked here at the church and then I became a writer and it's you know a scary thing to do but sometimes it's important to listen to the spirit's leading and to follow what he wants us to do rather than what might make a lot of sense to those around us And so I have a discussion question for you. As you're looking back over these first three ideas, do you prefer a predictable schedule? Are you more of a person who likes to have a plan in place? You're more analytical? Or do you like to fly by the seat of your pants and kind of follow wherever the wind blows? Take a couple of minutes and talk about that around your table. Hey, I'm guessing that you either fall probably more, a little more on the side of liking predictability and liking kind of a a schedule that's set in stone, or you might fall more to the side of, you know, just being able to kind of intuitively follow what you would like to do that that day. It seems like 
most of us fall one way or the other. I think Jesus lived this out in perfect balance, and that's why it's so wonderful to kind of see how he did that. Now we're going to look at a little bit like about how he did rest. So we've kind of looked more at work. How did Jesus rest? And what I see from looking at scriptures is that he rested both alone and with friends. And I think, again, probably we kind of fall more towards one or the other. If you're more of an introvert, you might maybe prefer to rest alone and kind of have time to yourself. If you're more of an extrovert, you like to hang out with your friends, and that's, you know, more restful to you and fun. Um, Jesus did both. Uh, I see in Mark 6, 30 through 32, the apostles had returned to Jesus. They'd been working hard in this little passage. And he says to them, come away with me to a desolate place and rest a while. It's kind of like the first men's retreat that ever happened. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. They were working so hard. Do you ever skip meals when you work really hard? It's like you don't even stop to eat lunch or something. Many were coming and going. They had no leisure even to eat, and they, they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. They're kind of being set apart. Jesus is with them, and they're spending that time to rest and recharge. Another thing I see about Jesus during his resting time is that he spent it in nature. He was out in nature. He wasn't at home on the couch watching TV, although there's nothing wrong with that. He wasn't in a university reading scrolls and improving his mind. He was out in nature. That was a very deliberate decision that he made. He was outside. You may not be a nature person. You may not be an outdoors person, but maybe that's an area you can grow in. Because that's what Jesus did. And there were buildings back then. He had the choice to be inside. He could have been in community spaces or in the city. He chose to go out into nature. Uh, he grew up in a beautiful place called Nazareth in the hills of Galilee, kind of like the foothills around here. Uh, he spent time in the wilderness at times, out in the desert or just the wilderness. No people. Uh, he was on the Sea of Galilee at times. Some of you love to be out on the water in boats. It's very restful, very beautiful. And I got to go see the Sea of Galilee when Mark took us there. And it reminds me a lot of Tahoe. If you've ever been up to Lake Tahoe, just being out on the water, just seeing the water, the hills around it, it's just gorgeous. Jesus was in the countryside often. He was in gardens. And if you think back to how the world began, where people first existed, was in a garden that God planted, the Garden of Eden. Beautiful uh, place, paradise. And in the Old Testament, God calls Israel his personal garden. It's his garden. He loves it. He loves the outdoors. Science is kind of catching up to scripture and showing us that being in nature or even viewing scenes of nature reduces anger, fear, stress, and increases pleasant feelings. They're even saying that it reduces mortality. So if you spend more time in nature, you will probably be happier and live longer. Just that detail alone. Nature soothes, heals, and restores. Uh, let's take a look. I'm going to skip over that discussion question and look at the pace of Jesus' schedule. So we've kind of looked at work. We've looked at rest. How did he pace his schedule? And as we kind of mentioned before, he allowed interruptions to his schedule. His timing was different than many people expected. 
And there are so many examples of this throughout scripture from the woman who was bleeding, who had been ill for a long time, who grabbed his robe in desperation, looking for healing. He stopped. He talked to her. Or when he talked to Zacchaeus in the tree, there was this big group of people. Jesus goes over to the sycamore tree, talks to Zacchaeus. He allowed interruptions to his schedule. So his schedule was not something that flowed necessarily, necessarily looking at it from the outside. It was something where he's, in a, you know, he's moving quickly, he slows down, he stops. He moves quickly, he slows down, he stops. He allowed interruptions. What I take from that is that Jesus did not serve his calendar. Jesus did not serve his calendar. Because your calendar can become like a slave master. It can become something where you're always trying to catch up. You're always trying to fill it. You're always trying to check off all your to-dos, and you can never do it all. And it's, you know, not a perfect world. So Jesus did not serve his calendar. There were times when he did not heal people. He had to move on and do something else. He was on a different mission. There were people who wanted to be healed, and not everyone got their wish of physical healing from Jesus. And the best example I can remember or think of for this is when Lazarus was ill. Lazarus was one of Jesus' best friends on this earth. He was the brother of Mary and Martha. He was sick. He was dying. This is a time, you know, when someone's dying, we call in friends and family. Come as fast as you can. Please come. Jesus was called, and he delayed, and he got there late. Lazarus had passed away. And Jesus arrived, and everybody was a little, you know, wondering what was going on, a little angry with him. He cried at the grave, and then he called Lazarus forth. And so his timing was perfect. He knew what he was doing, even though he appeared to be late to others. I think the principle that I see in Jesus' life is that he lived in the moment and eternity at the same time. He lived in the moment and eternity at the same time. I think it's important to remember that calendars are earthly and that God's timing and schedule are different. So how do we clue into that? How do we know what God's timing is and what a schedule is? How do we know to move beyond this earthly calendar that sometimes seems like a slave master. And that's where I want to talk to you a little bit about this astronaut that I've been working with. I think this is a great illustration of this idea because I think that how you know what calendar you should be following, how to resolve this tension of work and rest, is to walk more closely with the Lord. And this is a, something I've heard about since I was a little kid. And I remember as a little kid, people talking about walking with God and as a little kid, you think about, okay, you know, I'm supposed to hold hands with God and kind of walk with him. Uh, but as you grow up, as I grew up, I remember wondering, what does it mean to walk with God? I don't get that. Well, how, you remember, I'm a journalist. I'm trying to make it simple and clear. What does that mean, to walk with God? And I think very simply, it means to get to know him better so that you can hear his voice and so that he can direct your steps. And that's a whole nother thing to talk about, how to get to that point. 
But let me tell you about the astronaut and what he does with spacewalking, because to me it kind of helps me understand this idea of walking with God. So back a couple of months ago, I went with the astronaut, his name is Scott Parazinski, to Houston, where NASA is based. And he was an astronaut for many years. He did five space shuttle missions and seven spacewalks. He's kind of the Jedi of spacewalkers, is what he's called. He was just inducted into the Astronaut Hall of Fame. And he took me to this place called the NBL, or the Neutral Buoyancy Laboratory. And this is what they wear inside the lab. They wear a full-on spacesuit like an astronaut would wear on a spacewalk, everything authentic to what they're going to do in space. And then they use this gigantic swimming pool. And let's hold here for a minute. It's the largest swimming pool in the world. It's 40 feet deep. I don't know how many gallons it holds. And I remember walking into this place with him, and there were divers in the water, and they were just getting out of the water, all these kind of Navy SEAL guys. And as they're climbing out, the water was cloudy, and so all I could see is this giant pool. And then all of a sudden, as they climbed out and they dumped off all their gear, the water cleared, and inside the pool is a space station. So this is a two-scale replica of the International Space Station down to every nut and bolt on the space station. It's completely authentic. The only thing it does not include is the solar sails. So the space station, if you've seen a diagram, it has these big sails that are orange, and they have solar panels, and that's what powers the space station. But everything else is completely authentic. So what they do is they put on these space suits. They climb down inside the pool, and then they have a bunch of Navy divers around them to keep them safe. And then they begin to practice and work and carry out the missions that they're going to do in space over and over and over and over. They have a list. This is what you're going to be doing today. You're going to be moving this. You're going to be tightening these bolts. You're going to be untightening these and moving it somewhere else. And they have a list to carry out. There's a lot of repetition. There's a lot of visualization of the tasks that happened before. And I'm sure you can guess this, it's extremely difficult. Physically, it's a huge challenge because they're inside this big bulky suit. It's pressurized. And even just moving, it's like, you know, maybe you're in cement or something. It's just very, very difficult. The reason they train in the pool is because it replicates zero gravity in space. So they're trying to see what's this like as my body's trying to float around and I'm trying to get this work done. And um, what I learned from Scott as he kind of talked about this is that the more you do it, the more comfortable you get with it. And he said, it began to feel like my second skin, like I was at home in this gigantic training pool on the space station in a spacesuit, wearing a space diaper because they can't just take the suit off and go to the bathroom when they have to, not being able to eat and drink, carrying out these difficult tasks, wearing this helmet, you know, oxygen piped in. It's dangerous. That's why the divers are there. If the suit springs a leak, you're in deep trouble. And he said, I began to feel very, very comfortable. There's another slide I want to show you. This is kind of the control center for the pool. And there's a guy who's directing you. So the guy with no hair there, the bald guy, is directing the divers. He's directing the astronauts. They've got all these screens where he can see what's going on. It was really fun because Scott was able to talk to them and kind of surprise them. They didn't expect him. And next slide. 
this is a kind of a more of a view from the top, looking down at the space station. There's a diver right there, and there are astronauts in there, but you can't quite see it. And so it's just an amazing experience. Lots of work. They do this for years, typically. They train for a year or two before they go out on a mission and do a spacewalk. But once they have put in the work and practiced and been directed and done this until it's like your home, until the suit feels like a second skin, then they get the reward. And this is Scott when he was up in what's called the Vomit Comet, <laughs> which is the plane that goes up and does these huge dives and they get a few minutes of weightlessness and training. And look, I mean, can you imagine that feeling? the joy, kind of the sensation of weightlessness, you're flying. It's like your body has no weight. He said it's an amazing feeling. And then once you've been through this part of the training, then you get to go to space. So he's in the exact same kind of spacesuit that he was in in the pool, but now he gets to be doing what he was trained to do, what he dreamed to do since he was a little boy. Then you get to do work on the space station. You get to put it together. And look at this view of the Earth. Isn't it beautiful? This is our atmosphere, this little thin blue line. Uh, one of the astronauts I talked to said it looks like the peel of an apple. That's how tiny the atmosphere is. Inside this atmosphere is where we all live, where everything we know and understand, everybody we love lives inside this little thin blue line. Scott gets to go up above it all and see it see this perspective, see kind of the wor world almost from God's eyes. And then when you've done your practicing, you've had your experience actually being in space, he went out on the Canada arm, which is the robotic arm, and he actually sewed together a rip that had developed on the space station with some MacGyver-type tools that they put together inside in a moment, an Apollo 13 moment, where they had to repair the space station. He could only do this because he had done the prep work in the pool for years. He had practiced. And so here's what I take from that. Walking with Jesus, walking with the Lord, and getting to this point, it's going to take time. It takes dedication, and it takes practice. And at first, it might seem countercultural. It might seem confusing. You might confuse people around you when you're following the Lord's will for your life, which is going to be different from anyone else's. But after a while, it becomes comfortable. It becomes like your second skin, and you will be at home walking with the Lord, not serving your calendar, and kind of rising above this idea of balancing work and rest. We learn how to balance work and rest when we walk with God in the unforced rhythms of grace. And it feels like floating, and it feels like flying. And this, this hymn I love, I don't know if you grew up in the church, but this is an old-timey hymn by Francis Havergal called Take My Life and Let It Be, and I think it's just beautiful. The words are, Take my life and let it be, consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, and let them flow in endless praise. Thank you.